0: Good morning, church family. My name is Corey Junko. I am the student pastor here for those of you that do not know me. And if you cannot tell, I am also not Danny Boudreaux. Um, He is on vacation with his family this week, um, so he's having a great time traveling and seeing family, um, all the things that he cannot wait to do. Um, And if you know Danny Boudreaux, you know he hates traveling. So, um, but he is off on vacation, which is always a good thing for him. But we are going to go ahead and continue in our study of First Peter, and we'll actually be in First Peter chapter one, reading verses thirteen through sixteen. Um, but as you turn there, one thing that I hate above anything else is having to get ready. Like I hate preparing to go somewhere, hate preparing to have to pack things, like hate having to get ready. And if you have been a part of this church for any time the past couple of months you know that we're about to go on a spring break trip. And to go on any kind of retreat, you have to be ready to go on the trip. So this past week, like, I was getting everything prepped. Like, hey, did I communicate with the parents? Did I get all the medical release forms? Did I get enough snacks? Did I tell the students what to bring? Like, all these type things, like, I had to prepare for. And, like, the reason why I hate having to get ready is because I'm always going to forget something. I'm always going to have something on a list that will just go off my memory, but I'll always forget something. And whenever I'm doing that, like I hate that process. I love getting to the destination, but I hate the prep work before. And whenever you start looking at getting ready for any trip, those, trips, those steps are exhausting. But without those steps, the day that we leave would be terrible. The day that we get to leave on Tuesday <laughs> would be a nightmare. And like this past week, like I even had to get um, our schedule a bus to come pick us up because two of our buses are in the shop. So if you know anything about buses, you know that vehicles mess up, especially when you need them the most. So like if I wouldn't have been ready to get a bus in place, our trip would have been a disaster from the get-go. But having to get ready for something is vital in what we do. And even in our Christian life, there are steps that we have to take to be spiritually ready. There are steps that we have to follow in order to be ready whenever God calls us to action, when God calls us to do something. And then in 1 Peter, Peter lays out these action steps in order for us to hold on to that living hope. This past week, whenever Danny was preaching, he was preaching continuously about the living hope we have in Christ and the importance of that. And as Peter was celebrating the believers due to what Christ has done for them, he was also sharing a blessing that they are or their blessing as they are as followers of Christ. He is pointing them towards what their lives should be producing. And what the lives of Christians should be producing is those action steps that we should be following. But what's crazy is when people become Christians, a lot of times people don't change the way God has called them to change. And whenever your life doesn't reflect what God is calling you to produce, that's where church hurt comes in place where people are hurt by the church to the point they don't want anything to do with church. And a quote that comes from uh, Gandhi, Gandhi, it says, I would become a Christian if we're not for Christians. Gandhi said this on his deathbed. He was saying, I would have become a Christian if it weren't for Christians. So just think of the impact that we have as Christians. We lead people to Christ and people see the way that we respond and by the way we respond is the way that they respond as well. And whenever Peter is talking about this, he's talking to a group of people that are under severe persecution. Under persecution to the point of every time they're somewhere, people are seeing how they would respond. If they respond negatively, that throws fuel in their fire of why the heck would I want to be a Christian? Or if they respond hey, keep beating us, keep doing this, keep persecuting us. They're like, what is wrong with these people? Something's different about these people. But what's interesting is as we keep reading through, um, or as we start reading in verses 13 through 16, we'll see these action steps that Peter is laying out for all believers to follow. I'm going to start reading um, now. Starting in verse 13, it says this, "'Therefore, preparing your minds for action "'and being sober-minded, set your hope fully "'on the grace that we've brought to you "'at the revelation of Jesus Christ.'" As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into those verses. Lord, just thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for being a God that is holy. Thank you for being a God that is worthy of our praises. And God, thank you for using people that mess up constantly. And Lord, thank you for continually showing that grace to us. And Lord, just help for us to be a group of people that are following after you wholeheartedly. Help for us to be a group of people that are looking to you for our next step. And Lord, just thank you for laying out these action steps for us to follow. And Lord, just please be with me, and let it be you speaking and not me. In your holy name, Jesus Christ, amen. The very first thing we're going to look at today is a change in our new perspectives. So, like, if you're a note-taker, this would be point number one. A change in our new perspectives. A new change in our perspectives. And it actually comes from 1 Peter 1.13. I'm going to reread that really quickly, and then we're going to dive in. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we've brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first action step that we see from Peter is this. Prepare your minds for action. Like I talked about earlier, like I hate having to get ready. Like I hate having to be ready to do, like I just hate that whole process. Like why can't I just always be ready? And whenever you're looking at this, you see prepare your minds for action. That's not something that just happens. Nobody is just automatically, they wake up and their minds are prepared for action. Like that's not what happens. There's some readiness that has to take place before then. And what's interesting is whenever um, Peter is writing this, he's writing it to a culture where the men, they wore robes. And I don't know if you've ever tried to run in a robe or a skirt or a dress. Um, I can unfortunately say I've tried that before because I was in an Easter drama, not for any other reason. But um, I was a guard in an Easter drama, so I had to wear a robe. And trying to run in a robe is not fun. And so whenever... Peter was talking to these people. He was saying, hey, prepare your minds for action like you would if you're ready to be in action in your rope. So what they would do, they knew what that meant, is they would have to tie their robe up into shorts. So therefore, they're not hindered when they're running. And um, as he is saying this, he's saying, prepare your mind for action as if you knew in your everyday life something was going to happen where you had to run. So that what they knew that meant was they had to constantly have their robes pulled up. They had to constantly be ready to run, ready to fight, ready to do whatever the circumstances dealt them because they were always ready. And another thing that Peter is also telling them is, hey, if you kept your robe tied up in shorts, if you stayed ready, you never had to get ready. So they were constantly prepared to fight, constantly prepared for action. And um, another place in the Bible where this comes into place is actually from Exodus 12 and verse 11. This is whenever um, the Jews were in captivity in Egypt. They've been in captivity for years and years and years. And the plagues had just happened. God is talking through Moses. Moses is telling the Jews what they were supposed to do. So then God says, hey, y'all are going to be set free. Hey, y'all are going to have freedom. Hey, everything is about to be turned back around. So the Jews are getting amped up. They're getting excited, like, what is about to happen? So then God says, hey, the final plague is this. It's the Passover. And he gave them a whole list of different things they're supposed to do. How they're supposed to prepare the meal. How they're supposed to be ready. How they're supposed to eat the meal. And as they're eating the meal, this is what God had instructed them. In Exodus 12:11, it says this. In this manner you shall eat, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They had to be prepared to move because God was leading them out of slavery. They had to be prepared to move because the second that God says, "Hey, it's time to go," they had to be ready. There wasn't time for them to go. Oh, wait, God, I got to go do this. Hey, wait, God, I got to go get this ready. I got to do this, this, and this. No, God says, "Hey, eat the Passover meal in haste because you've got to be ready when I'm calling you. You've got to be already prepared." And um, God was leading them into a new life, a life not of slavery, but of a life of freedom. And if they weren't ready to take that step, they could miss that entire plan. The same way that God led them out of Egypt is the same way God is leading his people today from their old life into their new life. That's why Peter is saying, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for things of God. Prepare your mind for people around you. As believers, we must be prepared for action. So the question comes up, how do we do this? How do we prepare our mind for action? How do we get ready to be ready? And it starts with through spending time in Bible and prayer, through instruction and training. How are we going to know God's standard apart from knowing the Bible and praying? answer is you're not. Like God wants us to know things that he has written for us. And that is through communication, through his written word, and through us praying to him. How are we going to reach others if we're not trained? How are we going to be ready for action if we are not equipped? The place you're trained, the place that you're equipped, is through the church. The church is a great place for all of those actions. And another way that us as a church are helping equip is through the next steps area in the lobby. Like there are multiple, multiple, multiple different places for you to fall in love with God's word, for you to be plugged into serving, for you to see how accountability works. There are place after place after place that we are offering as a church to help you be equipped so that you're ready for action. So that you can be ready so you don't have to get ready. Um, Peter is urging us to think actively so that we are always ready. The next step to change or next step for a new change in our perspective is this. Be self-controlled or be sober-minded. Peter's saying, hey, first of all, keep your mind ready for action. Be ready for action mentally, but also be self-controlled or sober-minded. This phrase can be taken literally as refraining from intoxicating beverages or substances, or it can be taken figuratively as refraining from any hindrances in your mind that might make you stumble instead of following after God. And whenever we look at this, both ways are hindrances to us. Because first of all, whenever Peter's saying stand, or st- stay ready so you don't to get ready, keep your mind ready for action. If you don't have a clear mind, if you're falling in your walk with Christ, how are you ever going to be ready? When something happens, how are you going to, be to clearly think through what God's calling us to do? And um, Whenever we look at being, things being hindrances in our life, spiritually, that can be absolutely anything. That can be hobbies, that can be good things, that can be friends, that can be relationships, that can be whatever there is. And whenever those things get in the way of God, those things become hindrances in our life. Good things can be those spiritual hindrances, which is difficult. And there's a quote from one of my pastors growing up, and he always said this. He said, good things can become bad things when they get in the way of the best thing. And whenever you start thinking on that quote, like, there's a lot of truth to that. Good things become bad things whenever they get in the way of God. Good things become bad things when they get in the way of the best thing. And those are those hindrances spiritually that keep us... From being ready, Those are the things that we keep going back to, that keep distracting us from the way that God is calling us to be. By staying prepared, we can have the right tools in our arsenal to serve God greater. Um, a quote from John Phillips says this, The believers with the Bible in hand has access to truth in more realms of human activity than all of the philosophers, educators, scientists, and gurus of the world have. What politicians have available to them or what politician has available to them a book that can foretell the future of nations? What psychologist has at his fingertips an unerring guide to human behavior and to the law of sin and death? What philosopher has access to the mysteries that lie beyond the grave? What reformer has access to the power that can transform human personality and make drunken men sober, crooked men straight, and dirty men clean? the humblest deliverer with the Bible in hand, has access to all such knowledge, understanding and wisdom. We have the God, which is the Bible, so why don't we stay in it? Why is it so easy for us to get distracted from reading God's Word daily? It's because we don't keep our mind or our hindrances from our mind away. Or either we're not staying prepared to stay in God's will, God's area, God's being prepared for what God has for us. The last step for us to have a new change in our perspective is this. Set your hope on grace. If you remember last week, Danny continually talked about the um, final hope that we have, the everlasting living hope that we have in Christ. This hope is not provided in something that we can do. This hope is provided in something that Christ has already done. So there's no... No time for us to like say, hey, I've got to get my life ready. I've got to get my life better. I've got to do this before I can have that everlasting hope. No. Whenever we say, God, you're God. God, I trust you. God, I know who you are. God, I want that salvation. We get that everlasting hope. That hope that is over anything else that we can imagine. This hope is something that the people that Peter were writing to, the believers that Peter were writing to, understood. Because in the midst of their persecution, they were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. And during their persecution, they held on to that living hope. Because they knew Christ got them to this point. Christ would also deliver them ultimately. And whenever we see this, Peter knew this same type of living hope. Peter had experienced this hope previously whenever he was walking with Jesus. Peter also wanted to say, hey, this living hope is worth it. This living hope is better than anything you could imagine because this living hope is never-ending. And um, Peter, as he was experiencing hope time and time again, we're going to relook at one of those experiences. Peter was one that if you can put your foot in your mouth more than you want, you were probably Peter because Peter constantly had to get his foot out of his mouth because of things that he said. And one of those moments was whenever Jesus walked on the water and all the disciples were terrified. Peter said, hey, Jesus, let me walk. Hey, Jesus, let me walk on that water. Hey, Jesus, call me out if you truly are him. And Jesus says, okay, come on, come on. So Peter takes his foot out of the boat, starts walking towards Jesus. And as he's walking, he's looking at Jesus. As he's looking at Jesus, he's walking on the water. But the moment he took his eyes off the living hope was the moment that he started sinking. And whenever he started sinking, the living hope was there to save him. That his hope was completely invested in Jesus because Jesus was the only one able to save him at that moment. But as we're looking at that, Peter quickly realized that the one that he put his faith in, the one that he put his hope in, is also the one that can calm the seas. He's the one that can control the wind. He's the one that can control nature around him. So that hope became real because he saw that hope in action. He saw things that nobody else could do, but he saw that in Jesus. And whenever we see this, the story should remind us and encourage us because when the storms of life try to pull us down, we cannot take our eyes off the one that controls it all. Because Peter, when he took the, his eyes off of Jesus, that's whenever the waves started to overtake him. But in our life, keep looking to that hope. A new change in our perspective happens through staying ready so you don't have to get ready, clearing our minds to focus on God, and hoping in the one that controls it all. And then another action step that Peter keeps saying actually comes from point number two. And this says a new choice in our practices. This comes from 1 Peter 1.14. I'm going to reread that as well. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedience is key. And obedience is probably one of the harder words in the Bible, maybe aside patience. But obedience is a difficult word to follow. Because obedience is saying, hey, it's not me, it's you, God. And whenever we look at perfect obedience, we have to go back to the one that was perfect, which is Jesus. Jesus was first an obedient child to his earthly parents. And Luke twelve or two fifty one, it says this. Then he returned to Nazareth, and with them was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus was obedient to his earthly parents. What is crucial about that is, if anybody in here has kids, you know that disobedience starts very quickly. Um, just at our house this week, um, Liam thinks it's hilarious when Brianna says no. When Brianna says no, he'll start giggling and running away. So disobedience starts really early. Um, so it's kind of funny to watch, but I don't know, just because he's, he's cute when he runs away. So it's, like, it's more difficult to be, get mad at him. But um, a thing about obedience is I was the second child to an older brother who was probably perfect, which makes being a second child even more difficult because I could do nothing and not get away with it. So, like everything I did, I got in trouble. Probably because I needed it. Actually, most definitely because I needed it. I wanted to see how close to the line I could get, and then ultimately cross that line, and then get mad at to why I was getting in trouble for crossing the line. So, like I was that child. Um, I know that might be hard for you to believe, but that was 100% me. My brother um, was Robbie, and he was not perfect, but. He might as well have been because he never got in trouble. But if you were Jesus and you were Mary and Joseph, and your first kid was perfect, like legitimately perfect, like did no wrong, then you had another kid named James. James was doomed from the get go. (laughs) Like, James, legitimately, if he breathed wrong, he was in trouble because Jesus never did. Jesus was absolutely perfect in all of his things. Jesus was perfectly obedient. Where James may have been a great kid, but when you compare him to absolutely perfection, there's no comparison. So whenever we see obedience, we look back at Jesus. We'll keep looking at some of the things that Jesus was obedient to. Jesus was first obedient to his parents, but then second he was obedient to his heavenly father. I'm going to read a lot of verses here just kind of explaining that obedience. John 8, 29 says this, And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. John 4, 34 says this, And Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. Luke 22, 42, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Philippians 2, 8 says, He humbled himself in obedience to God and died on a criminal's cross on, of death. Jesus Christ was obedient to his earthly parents, but he was obedient to his heavenly father. And whenever we're saved, our, our God, Jesus' heavenly father is also our heavenly father. We should be that obedient to God. I know whenever, um, or whenever Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will. Not what I personally want, God, but what you want for me. How you want me to live, how you want me to carry out my life, that's how I want to carry out my life. We as believers must choose God over self. That is what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, hey, you've got to be ready for action. You've got to be sober-minded. You've got to look, set your eyes on hope. You've got to live for God over self. The believers that Peter is writing to could easily revoke all that they believed in order to flee from persecution. But they trusted the God that brought them to persecution would also deliver them from that. And they know they had so much faith in God that persecution wasn't going to deter them from sharing the gospel. There's a quote from a book that we're actually reading as a staff. It's called um, Evangelism as Exiles. And one of the quotes inside the book is from the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. His name is Richard Wormbrander, who was, was in prison for sharing the gospel. And this is what he says. He said, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was doing it, or whoever was caught doing this, received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. These people made a deal with the guards saying, hey, we're going to preach the gospel and y'all just beat us. It's a win-win for you. It's a win-win for me. Let's just do it. So that is what they did. But the reason they did that is because their faith was so grounded in Scripture, their their faith was so grounded in what God was calling them to, that it wouldn't be nonsense for them to be quiet. They were preaching the gospel in the darkest place because Christ had brought them to that darkest place to preach the gospel. They were obedient to share when that meant getting beat. They were obedient to share because what else could they do? They knew their life was not on this earth, or their earthly home was not on this earth. Their home was in heaven. So by them living for Christ, they were going to share it with everybody they came in contact with. Peter sums it, or Paul sums it up as, I'm going to live for Christ, or, I'm going to live for Christ and to die as gain. Because the moment that Paul gave his life to Christ, he died to himself. And whenever he died to himself, he said, God what else is there to live for? God, I'm doing your will because you're the only person worth living. You're the only person worth sharing. You're the only person worth telling people about. So God, whatever happens to me on this earth doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. We can live for Christ because his grace allows for us to overcome this world, which is extremely difficult to think about. But people do it every single day, even today because they know God is worth more than anything else. The third point is this, a new control in our priorities. In verses 15 and 16, it says this, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We can be holy because we are saved and brought into a new life apart from sin. We are continually dying to our old self to live for Christ. Over the last couple of weeks, we have had multiple baptisms, which is also... Baptism is a symbol of this. Baptism is a symbol of you dying to self and being raised with Christ. It's a beautiful symbol, but that same symbol should be happening every single day. It's hard to die to yourself because your earthly passions or what you find temporary joy in. But by dying to yourself, you're forsaking that to live for a holy God. You're saying, God, I want you over what I want now. I want what I want most over what I want now. And by doing that, we're setting our minds on that. We're saying, God, I want to be holy because you're holy. God, nothing else matters because I see what you're calling me to, and I know that that is way more impactful than anything that I can do on this earth. As a Christian, we should be shifting the control of our priorities to becoming holy. Verse 15 is actually complementary to verse 16. That's why we put it together. But that is a direct quote from Leviticus eleven forty-four and 45, which I'm going to read that really quick. And it says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. What is interesting about this comparison is this. First of all, clean animals, whenever he says be holy, like stay away from food, clean animals were those that chewed the cud and parted the hoof. Cows, sheep, and goats were clean which is kind of interesting, because I don't think of goats as being clean, but they were. Unclean examples would be a hog, because it parted the hoof, but it did not chew the cud. A camel, because it chewed the cud, but did not part the hoof. A horse, because it doesn't either. So whenever we look at this, this was, a deeper, this was deeper than just the things that you could have or not have. It was a picture of what followers of God's were to be like. Just as animals would chew on its food, the people of God would meditate on his word. Just as animals with hoofs, with a hoof left clean tracks rather than messy tracks, the people of God were to live a clean life and not a dirty one. Seafood or the hoof represented the separation of God's people and chewing, and the chewing represented the meditation of God's people. Seafood was clean if it had fins and scales, because fins represented the ability to move forward and scales represented the ability to resist the pressure of the water in its natural location. We must be able to move forward and, pres- and resist the pressures of the world. Birds were clean unless they were carnivores because they fed on flesh, or omnivores because they fed on anything. We must be clean on what we view and read. Also, various insects were clean depending on the standards of the law. Peter omits the reference of the ceremonial walls because he knew that... Now the cross makes people clean. Whenever we see the new covenant come in, we are no longer under all these sacrificial laws. We are no longer under these crazy circumstances because we see that God said, hey, all those sacrifices are done. And what's interesting is in Hebrews um, chapter 10, it goes through the difference between those two. It explains that as we look to Christ, we no longer have to sacrifice anymore. As we look to Christ, the new covenant has been ushered in. And it says this in Hebrews 10, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the things themselves. The sacrifice under the system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifice would have been stopped. But worshipers, for the worshippers would have been purified once and for all. Their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sin year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of ghouls and goats to take away sins. And then continuing in that chapter, it says, First Christ said, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings. Or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Then he said, Look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will for us was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. We can be holy because of the sacrifice of our Savior, not because of something we've done. Whenever God says, Be holy, for I am holy. He's not putting on extra work on you. He's saying, be holy, for I am holy, because I have covered all of your sins. So live in the way that I've commanded. Live in the way that I've taught. Live in the way that I'm drawing you. Live in the way that I'm calling you to serve. Live in that type of way. Not adding in different laws, different things like this. No, God's saying, follow me, or whenever you gave your life to me, you have been made holy. So keep living in that holiness. That new, that new covenant that I ushered in brought holiness onto the believers. The law was that before was just a shadow, but we are now living in the light of the new covenant. We are living in the life where we can be brought from death to life through the death of Jesus Christ. The control in our lives needs to be based off the one that can save our souls. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, his priorities should become our priorities. The deeper you get to know Jesus, the more that you want your life to line up with His. The deeper you study Jesus, the more you want to know about Jesus. The deeper you study God, the more you want to learn about God because His priorities will match your priorities. It's no longer be holy for I'm holy. That's like a burden. It's be holy for I'm holy because whenever you start following after Christ, your priorities and His priorities start matching up. And whenever those priorities start matching up, that is how you live in that holiness. Again, when the Apostle Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, his statement indicated that when he gave his life to Christ, he died that day. He said, God, it's you and not me. God, wherever you're calling me, there's no alternative. Wherever you want me to walk, wherever you want me to share the gospel, wherever you want me to be is where I'm going to be because there's nothing else I want more. I want you and nothing else. So Paul's life is indication of a holy life. God's statement of be holy for I'm holy is not just a suggestion, but it is rather the Christian's way of life. Our control, which is God, should alter all of our priorities. That is what what Peter is saying. That was what Paul was saying. Peter's saying, follow after God above all else. Follow after what he's commanding you. Follow after where he's drawing you over what the world can say. Um, Another thing that is interesting about this entire statement is some people may not even know what that even means. Like some people might be saying, hey, what does it mean to give God control of my life? Like I have no idea what that has to entail. Like I don't know what what that even means. The good news about that is God saves people every single day. Salvation isn't just a one-time thing, like a one-day-out-of-the-week thing. No, God saves people every single day. Over the last couple of weeks, whenever we were baptizing some of the kids, there was a couple of the kids that said, hey, I got saved at home. I got saved at home during a weeknight, just a random day of the week, because God is worth them giving their life to. God is worth saying, God, I want to follow you over everything else. And they did it as a child. Salvation is something that we do to say, hey God, I need you to control my life because I can't do it. And what's interesting about that is that can happen today. In just a little bit, I'm gonna walk back to the foyer. And if somebody needs has any questions about giving their life to God, giving their life over, giving their control over to God, come talk to me. There are also maybe some things where that we went over today about being ready so you don't have to stay ready. That happens today as well. Some believers may need to come and get right with God before they ever leave. Because if you're not ready when you leave these doors, whenever God calls you to do something, you can't say, hey, God, I don't want to do it right now. Give me a couple of days, then I'll be ready. No, if it was like the Jews in Exodus, they had, God said, hey, eat your meal in haste. Be ready now, because when I call you, you've got to go. Our minds should be constantly prepared for action. Our mind should constantly be ready to do what God's wanting us to do. And that happens through you giving your life continually to Christ. Saying, God, today I'm living for you. God, today I'm going to bear the cross that leads to you. God, today my life is yours. So that happens through prayer. That happens through you getting your life ready for God. And those things can happen today, right now, during this invitation. Um, you can come up to this altar, you can pray, you can worship, you can do whatever, but get your life prepared for God. Get your life ready for action. If that is salvation, come talk to me. We can go through Scripture and we can see what that means. But this time is now yours. Do whatever with it that God is calling you to do. Lord, just thank you this day, Lord. Thank you.